Welcome to Jerusalem Studio Podcast. Join us to discuss the latest updates from Israel and the region. Shalom and welcome to Jerusalem Studio. The three dominant themes in the calculus of Russian-Israeli relations now seem to be power, prestige, and proximity. Russia is obviously a rising or returning force in the Middle East and the Eastern Mediterranean, while its global competitor, the United States, wants to reduce its own military involvement in the region. And because Russia's air, naval, and to some extent ground presence in Syria makes Russian forces subject to friction with Israel's air force operating against Iranian targets threatening Israel from its northern neighbor, deconfliction is a constant concern. To survey the status of Jerusalem's strategy vis-à-vis Moscow, we're joined from central Israel by Ms. Paula Sleer, who is the Middle East Bureau Chief at Russia Today. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Also joining us from Central Israel's Professor Ze'ev Khanin, who is an expert in Russian and Middle Eastern studies at Barilan and Ariel Universities. Thank you for joining us as well. My pleasure. And with me here in the studio is our TV7 analyst and host of Watchmen Talk, Mr. Amir Oren. Amir, give us a broader uh, overview of current relations between Moscow and Jerusalem. Well, Russia obviously um, has a lot of respect for Israel's uh, position and military power and connections in Washington and what have you. And um, nevertheless, uh, Moscow is focused on its own interests and ambitions in the region, which right now uh, are mostly in Syria. And uh, what the Russians want in Syria is to stabilize their air and naval uh, bases at Khamaimim and Tartus. And um, because they want the Bashar Assad regime or a similarly friendly regime to uh, safeguard uh, their presence uh, in Syria, they don't want uh, some rogue regime calling for their ouster. What they really want to do is uh, have the sort of relationship with Israel which lets them stay there. Of course, they have their own problems vis-à-vis the Turks, vis-à-vis the Iranians. Uh, These are ostensibly their partners in the Astana process, which is uh, one of the two tracks um, supposed to lead to some peace and stability in Syria, if not uh, during this millennium, perhaps in the next one. But right now, they are working on it. Um, What one should also consider regarding Russia is the stability of the team handling the Middle East. You have, of course, President Putin in power in one way or the other for 21 years now. You have Foreign Minister Lavrov for 17 years already. He just had a major speech on the Middle East. And you have his deputy, Mikhail Bogdanov, who has been ambassador to Israel and to Egypt and served in other Arab capitals. And Bogdanov has been at his job for the last nine years now. So they are all old hands at foreign policy and at knowing how to navigate the uh, stormy seas of the Middle East. Indeed. Ms. Lear, I'd like to refer the next question to you. On the 19th of March, we had Israeli Foreign Minister Gabi Ashkenazi travel to Moscow, during which he met with his Russian counterpart, Sergei Lavrov. That meeting was quite interesting, considering that Gabi Ashkenazi did not run for re-election in the Israeli election. 
but uh, rather was more focused on meeting with different uh, counterparts across the region, across the world, uh, in the short time still alluded to him. And then in that specific meeting that we're speaking about, he was quite open about uh, the importance of relations between Russia and Israel. And uh, uh, it seems like the Russians are quite happy about what was said in those meetings and how things evolved. Uh, also, uh, strengthening uh, their stance vis-a-vis uh, -vis, uh, Israel, vis-a-vis -vis Syria, vis-a-vis -vis Lebanon, and various concerns that were raised by Jerusalem were suddenly taken seriously uh, in a manner of alignment, if you will. How do you see that uh, uh, from your perspective? Well, we certainly did hear positive remarks following that meeting. In a press conference that was held, we heard from the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, that both sides have a very similar position when it comes to wanting to see a political process in Syria resolve the, the situation there. Naturally, there is this de-confliction -confl mechanism that's in place between the Israelis and the, the um, Russians over Syria. So whenever there is some kind of Israeli airstrike, there's presumed to be communication behind the, the scenes that won't lead to any kind of altercation or any kind of accident that we saw happen a few years ago. I think, however, at the same time, we are witnessing a, a kind of growing frustration from the Russian side towards the Iranian presence in Syria. Now, this, of course, bodes well from the Israeli side because they're quite intent on destroying whatever kind of Iranian enlargement is happening across the border in their, in their northern country. And in this respect, we did later um, hear comments. In fact, we heard the comments earlier from Lavrov when Israel carried out an airstrike back in January in which he said that Israel should inform Russia of any kind of potential threats rather than just going ahead and carrying out airstrikes in Syria. Syria. And he said that Russia would take every measure that it could to try and neutralize the threat. The word he used was neutralize. Now, this followed an incident in which Netanyahu carried out airstrikes over Syria. And what's interesting in the remarks that were made from the Russian side is that the language was a lot softer than it has been before. Now, there was no public Israeli reaction to those comments, which I think speaks volumes. And at the same time, Israel continued with its airstrikes. So I think there's a certain understanding that has been in place for quite some time between the Israelis and the Russians vis-a-vis -vis what's happening in Syria. At the same time, I think the Russians are growing increasingly impatient about the Iranian activities inside Syria. Russia and Assad, uh, sorry, Russia, the Iranians and the Russians have 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 helped prop up Assad. And while they were completely on the same page in the beginning, the Iranian Revolutionary Guard seemed to have kind of dictated things to their own accord and seem to be overstretching their marks. So in the same way that Israel would like to see a de-escalation or a, a, a lessening of the Iranian influence in Syria, so would Russia like to, to see the same. And I think that's why when the foreign ministers had this meeting on March the 17th, there was a lot of agreement. The problem with the Astana process that Amir Oren referenced is that it doesn't really seem to be going anywhere. Although Russia is heavily invested in this, it seems to have a lot of more short-term military achievements. And it's still questionable as to whether or not it will bring any kind of long-term peace process or long-term solution to the Syrian conflict. Professor Khanin, how do you perceive this? Um, I agree with Paula, especially in her point, uh, well, that's also my point, that Russia is not very much happy about the, uh, Iran's role in Syria. 
on one hand, in Moscow, are not interested to remove uh, uh, Iran uh, and uh, most of the Iran allies, although not about all of them they're happy about. Uh, however, they're not interested to remove all of them for Syria, but they, of course, are not interested uh, or are not ready to accept the situation as it now. That Iranians intend to uh, not just to play their own game, but also dictate the rules of the game. Uh, that's what uh, Russians were not ready to accept and were not intended at the very beginning. Uh, I would suggest uh, talking about this issue to pay attention to a report that is going to be presented to the Valdai Club, that it's a platform under the patronage of the international pl platform, under the patronage of the Russian presidential office uh, of uh, international expert and experts and researchers and also politicians and journalists. Uh, and uh, it's going to be uh, later this month and it will be specially devoted to the Russian policy in the Middle East. Uh, so uh, uh, as we know from this report uh, that was already presented to the expert community, uh, Russians believe that at the moment uh, they're actually going to continue with the concept that was presented by President Putin a few years ago, that uh, uh, of the so-called multipole uh, issue. Uh, that means that there is no uh, uh, either center or periphery in the world, and uh, there are no there are no so-called binary oppositions, the conflict between West and East, North and, and South, and so on and so forth. So in principle, they believe that uh, there are no in the Middle East uh, are not going to be a superpower with a specific ultimate uh, ultimate interest. Uh, um, according to the Russians, Europeans. Uh, uh, are limited uh, as far as they were able to limit uh, their role in the Middle East and the United States are also uh, uh, continue, at least that is the thing uh, uh, concerning the first steps of the current presidential administration, they continue the policy of the previous administration of so-called indirect involvement or uh, uh, giving uh, the activities to, into outsourcing on their allies. Uh, so from this point of view, uh, experts believe, Russian experts, believe that uh, the, the role of Russia uh, in the Middle East should not be changed, uh, meaning they are ready to be involved uh, in the niche uh, where other actors uh, concerning the great powers are going to, to, to pull out. And on the other hand, uh, to establish uh, personal and, and uh, effective relations uh, with the poten potential uh, actors or um, current actors uh, as far as the Russian interests are concerned. Uh, from this point of view, they're still ready to continue cooperation with Iran, but maybe on the lower, uh, a bit uh, uh, less scale as it used to be. Um, they are not very much happy about the uh, current position of Turkey administration uh, in the Middle East, especially in the Syria. And uh, on one hand, as Paula said, uh, uh, they sent uh, the indications to Jerusalem that uh, Jerusalem should be more careful as far as they're doing their activities, continuing their activities in Syria and other places in the Middle East. But on the other hand, uh, they understand uh, the Israeli position concerning the Israeli security. Um, and of course, uh, just to the, my last sentence, sentence in this case, they understand that Abrahamic agreements uh, change the rules of the game and Russians, uh, Russians are looking for their own way to be a part of this issue. Indeed, Mr. Owen. Just uh, uh, to tie into uh, Zeb's last point, uh, Lavrov went to the Gulf 
Lavrov, uh, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrov, visited uh, the UE and Qatar and other places in order to show that uh, Russia uh, can play both uh, sides of uh, the uh, Persian Gulf if, uh, if needed. And as concerned, the um, Middle East peace process in which Russia is um, a full-fledged actor, if it wants to be, uh, it is, uh, of course, part of the quartet, the EU, the UN, the US, and Russia. Russia, of course, has been signatory to the Oslo process when it was very weak, when uh, uh, Kozirev, when Andrei Kozirev was the foreign minister um, under Yeltsin. Uh, he was just um, someone who uh, appeared on stage as as uh, an addition to the Americans, the Israelis, and the Palestinians. But right now, if Putin wants to play um, a larger role in the Middle East peace process revived under Biden, he may do so. And one um, should not forget that the Russians were first, before, put, before uh, Trump, uh, recognizing uh, West Jerusalem as Israel's capital. They did it uh, quietly, uh, not with a lot of uh, fanfare, and they said that uh, they recognize East Jerusalem as the future capital of the future Palestinian state. They will not move their embassy from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem until they can move their legation from Ramallah to East Jerusalem. But they are on record as seeing the outline of the uh, future peace uh, plan between Israel and the Palestinians. Indeed. Uh, Ms. Paula, uh, when, when we're talking about everything that just was said, we can see that Moscow had also uh, invited a, a delegation of Hezbollah uh, to, uh, uh, to Russia, during which uh, they also reprimanded or rebuked uh, Hezbollah for uh, acquiring additional missiles uh, with uh, advanced capabilities uh, from the Islamic Republic of Iran, using various uh, smuggling corridors to bring them then to Lebanon. And uh, uh, this, of course, evolved into a situation where uh, Israel is in a position where it may have to respond to the growing power of Hezbollah, would then put also uh, the Assad regime in jeopardy, and, and this, of course, is a Russian uh, national security interest. How do you see this development where the Russians are suddenly putting the brakes on the uh, Iranians and their proxies in the region, forcing them to, uh, to acknowledge the fact that the Assad regime should stay even at their own cost? What you say is completely correct. I mean, what we have seen is Putin and the Russian regime supporting a return from the Iranian side to the 2015 nuclear deal. And part of that is that they're hoping that it will put the brakes, as you correctly say, on the Iranian sponsoring of its proxies in the region, which would include Hezbollah and certainly would include the Iranian militia that are inside Syria, the kind of funding that they and Hezbollah get and that continues to undermine and perpetuate the situation in Syria. I think Russia is okay with the status quo, but I also think that there has been a real attempt by the Russian side to try and bring the, the Syrian situation to a close. I mean, they would much rather that it not linger on forever, whereas you have Hezbollah on the other side, which actually 
enjoys it more and wants to keep destabilizing the situation. And that's why you're getting part of this frustration from the Russian side. Don't forget that the Russian operation in Syria, proportionally to other military operations elsewhere in the world, hasn't cost the Russians that much. I mean, I've seen the figure bandied about of one to two billion dollars. At the same time, I think it's about 200 Russian servicemen who've been killed because most of the fighting on the ground is actually carried out by um, Syrian soldiers and by Hezbollah fighters. So that's why I say, on the one hand, while they would like the situation to be brought to a close, it's not costing them that much in terms of if it has to continue for, for, for quite some time. We've also seen vis-a-vis -vis Lebanon that Russia has come out, although not in public support, but it is supporting Saad Hariri from the, the Sunni bloc in terms of forming a government. And they're hoping that that will also contribute towards constraining the Iranian influence inside Syria and at the same time limiting Iran's ability to, to continue to support and, and enlarge Hezbollah and also limit Iran's regional aspirations, if you like. I want to make reference to one other meeting that also took place in Russia recently, and that was in February when Hamas and Fatah came to um, Russia and held meetings in Moscow. And the point was made earlier by Amir that Russia could potentially be pushing forward for some kind of peace process. Russia very much is, uh, is very much active in terms of bringing the Palestinian factions to talk together. You also have Palestinian elections, which are coming up not so far in the, in the future. And Russia very much would like to position itself, as you mentioned earlier, with the United States withdrawing from the region, coming more to the party and, and contributing more. And, and certainly Russia has better relations with Palestinian groups than it that than the United States has. And, and we haven't seen any change in that following the the change of administration in the United States with Biden. So Russia is actually involved in, in quite a few things, not just in Syria, but also certainly on, on the Palestinian side and potentially also bringing Israelis and Palestinians to restart peace negotiations as well. Professor Khanin. I would say that uh, in Russia, in Moscow, we more and more hear uh, the ideas that circulate, circulate both in uh, presidential administration and Kremlin and in the foreign office that at the moment, while talking about, about mid the Middle East or the development in the Middle East, uh, uh, different countries of the Middle East uh, and uh, uh, conflict around and within Syria, uh, that personalities are more important than institutions. Uh, so now when they make a reassessment uh, of Russia's position here in the region, they are first of all thinking about whether they have what sort of relations uh, they have between Russian leaders and leaders of the Middle Eastern countries. Um, even, uh, they even, are even talking about uh, the third Anahda, uh, uh, they, uh, they say it in Arabic, meaning the, uh, the third step of Arab revival here in the Middle East. So uh, while uh, in uh, the first Nakh al Nakhda in 19th century, it was a product of intellectuals and uh, in leaders, uh, and in the 20th centuries, uh, there were politicians of uh, extreme Arab and not only Arab nationalism, like Gamal Abdel Nasser, Khadibur Gibra, and so other people like that, like Muammar Gaddafi. So now they're talking about pragmatic, uh, modern type leaders like uh, Mohammed ben Zayed, like uh, Mohammed ben Salman, like uh, Tamim ben Hamad and uh, uh, Morocco king, uh, uh, which have uh, which they're trying to establish personal relations 
between the Russian leaders and these people. Uh, in this case, they're also talking about Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, and uh, what Russians are asking uh, in Moscow, whether, for, for example, the change of leadership in the Middle Eastern countries, like uh, who will be the next prime minister in the state of Israel, in what way it will, it will impact uh, uh, the current understanding. As far as we are talking about the understandings, uh, we understand uh, uh, coming back to uh, Ashkenazi visit to Moscow and Lavrov visit in the Middle East, uh, we may understand that uh, in Russia they are ready to accept, uh, accept or a continuer with the three uh, understandings that used to be uh, agreed uh, between Russia and Israel when uh, uh, Israel was interested um, uh, to prevent any change of strategic balance of forces uh, on the northern border, uh, northern, uh, east, uh, northern eastern border uh, of the state of Israel uh, and uh, not to make uh, Syria uh, the channel uh, of uh, provision from Iran uh, to southern Lebanon of uh, extended weapons. Uh, so from this point of view, we, we may understand that Russians are still accepting uh, that Israel is free, uh, the hands are free, and almost give uh, Jerusalem uh, the green light uh, to do everything they found uh, necessary in order to stop it. Uh, that is why uh, on the eve of the Ashkenazi visit to Moscow, it was declared, acknowledged, uh, that uh, Israeli forces uh, made some steps in order to stop uh, provision of uh, strategic resources uh, to Iranians and Iranians proxy uh, in Syria as well as Syrian regime. Uh, so I would I believe to conclude this point uh, that uh, uh, Russians are playing their own game. On the other hand, they are ready to cooperate with other forces in the Middle East. So at the moment, uh, regardless who will be Israeli next prime minister or how long Mr. Putin is going to stay in Kremlin, uh, the current rules of the game are going to continue. Mr. Owen, I'd like to uh, mention an interesting observation. The fact that uh, all the countries in the region, including Bahrain, uh, the United Arab Emirates, uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, all of which have been uh, somewhat shunned by the Biden administration uh, since it took office and uh, the Biden administration has made very clear, uh, including Egypt, uh, of course, that uh, realpolitik is out of the window and everything to do with uh, relations has to go hand in hand with uh, uh, the norms and values uh, which uh, it uh, declaratively stands for. Uh, it seems that right after that happened, suddenly we see Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov visit all those different countries that uh, were shunned. And then we see also the Chinese foreign minister and state counselor Wang Yi also follow suit in, in the same countries, uh, specifically, not all of them, the majority of them. Uh, of course, the, the Chinese excluded Israel from this specific trip. But we see a lot of uh, shifts of trying to somehow dissuade those uh, specific countries to turn eastward. To a certain degree. How do you see that? So here we are speaking in Jerusalem and as always behaving in an Israeli-centric way, as if Israel is the center of the universe, as if everything revolves around our problems and our interests and our aspirations. But the reality is that there are now three peers or near peers in the world. It's not the Cold War. It's the United States. China and Russia. They are not of the uh, same 
volume, not of the same value, but nevertheless, these are the three most important forces in the world, and they're interacting with each other. And Lavrov went to see his Chinese counterparts. Uh, they are waiting, they, they expressed it, they are waiting for the Biden administration to uh, shape and present its global policy. They know it takes time. Senate has to confirm all nominees. They have to put out their papers. They are waiting, as they have said, for the results of uh, the government making here in Israel. They are waiting for the Palestinian elections, perhaps for the Iranian elections. But they are acting according to their own view of their own interests, not according to the Israeli interpretation of these interests. And if it is going to help them vis-a-vis Beijing or Washington, it will take precedence over their policy towards Jerusalem. Shouldn't we add the 27-member bloc uh, of the European Union in this uh, equation to some degree? Biden wants to uh, uh, renew the alliance. And of course, Russia does not like NATO. It thinks that NATO is uh, too close to its borders, especially in Eastern and Central Europe. Uh, The Americans perhaps are now seeing the Black Sea as an arena where they should operate uh, more frequently. This has nothing to do right now with Israel. Israel is on the sidelines. Indeed. Well, we have a very short uh, uh, time left for today's program. Professor Hanin, I'd like to ask you very shortly, uh, do you see China's move to embolden itself and uh, also enlarge its, uh, of course, following the trade cooperation with uh, Iran and the various meeting in uh, the Middle East to enlarge its uh, depth of economic investment and uh, interests in the region, something the Russians can uh, agree to? Uh, I would say that Russians are happy uh, in some way. Uh, while we are talking in their direct cooperation with Beijing, they are not very much happy uh, about uh, Beijing's involvement into the areas uh, which are regarded in Moscow as the zone over their, uh, of their priorities, prior interests. So my answer is rather no than yes. Uh, Paula, I'd, li- I'd like to ask you specifically, do you see uh, the Russians also trying to move deeper? Of course, there is the nuclear aspect uh, in Turkey and uh, in uh, uh, Egypt. Uh, do you see the Russians seeking to bolster their economic involvement in the region, also on the civilian level at this stage? I certainly do. I mean, I think the Russians want to remain a relevant force in the region. The point also was made earlier in terms of the alliance or the agreement that was made as terms of Israel turning more and more eastwards. I mean, you had the recent Abraham Accords that has left Russia feeling a little bit uneasy. And at the same time, I don't think Russia wants to see a hardened, united, Israeli United Arab Emirates kind of axis against Iran. Mm -hmm. And so anything that would potentially see Russia's power weakening within the region, it certainly is going to want to be involved economically and civilian, from a civilian perspective in those countries. Well, this is all the time that we have for today. So I'd like to thank Ms. Lear, Professor Hanin, and Mr. Oren uh, for being part of today's program. And I'd like to thank our viewers as well. And we will see you next time. Thank you for joining us in another Jerusalem Studio podcast. For more content on Israel and its region, we invite you to visit our website at tv7israelnews.com and follow us on social media.